Now, we're in the middle of the long haul. I think we could all agree. Uh, summer feels like quite a while ago, and it's still a ways away. And, you know, our color palette becomes gray. The rain increases. This year's been cold and snowy, like go back to Alberta. And uh, it's tough, you know, and it might be some consolation knowing that Vancouver is actually only Canada's fourth rainiest city. Abbotsford has it the worst. Uh, sorry, Abbotsford. Uh, but we get roughly 50 inches of rain a year, which means nothing to most of us. So to put it into perspective, that's nearly double the amount of rainfall that England receives, which is historically the rainy city. Uh, in October and November, it rained every single day except for like two. And then we hit January, and it's often accompanied with this sinking feeling like, are we there yet? How much further do we have to go? Should we just hibernate, you know, close our eyes and grin and bear it? Like, how do we get through this well? And sometimes, sometimes, isn't this exactly how pursuing Jesus can feel? When will he return? How much further do we have to go? How do we get through this well? Our series uh, for the next six weeks is called A Faithful Presence. And my hope in this series is to sketch out a theology of our spirituality for the long haul. You know, a spirituality that can endure and sustain, because some of us, we might live a while, and we want to make sure we make it to the end. We don't want to be driven and tossed by the highs and lows in our spiritual faith, but we want to be sustained by the ongoing presence of God in our midst. David Fitch, he's a pastor and theologian uh, in Chicago, and he recently released a book called Faithful Presence, which uh, was very helpful, and he defines faithful presence this way. Faithful presence names the reality that God is present in the world and that he uses people faithful to his presence to make himself concrete and real amid the world's struggles and pains. This is the basis for a spirituality of the long haul, that Jesus is always present with us, and when we are present to his presence... He uses us. Paul, he uh, wrote a letter to a very young church in Thessalonica, and uh, he wrote two of them. And we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians for the next six weeks. It's going to be our guide as we continue, you know, consider a spirituality for the long haul. And so before we get into the letter directly, uh, there's some preamble. Let's talk a little bit about the context. Uh, Paul is writing to a church in Thessalonica. And despite the thousands of years that separate us, there's a lot of similarities. Try with me if you can. I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but try to imagine a port city uh, with, surrounded by ocean, with mountains as a backdrop, forest everywhere. Well, that's Thessalonica. Uh, it was on the eastern coast of Macedonia, uh, which we now call Greece, and it was on the major highways that connected the Roman Empire. So it was the hub for north, south, east, west, and as uh, ancient scholars called it the, the mother of all of Macedonia. So given its location and its connectedness, uh, it became very affluent and wealthy. And it was also a multicultural city, and as a result, religiously diverse. And so you had uh, Greek gods and Egyptian gods. You had the cult of Caesar and emperor worship. And you even had Judaism. Uh, so it was a melting pot, so to speak, in Thessalonica. So beautiful influential, affluent, and diverse. Sound like Vancouver? 
With all these similarities, it's, it's good to lean in and listen to what Paul had to say to Christians living in that context. But of course, Paul is a Jew from you know, Jerusalem. How, how did he end up in Thessalonica? Um, it's important, and I think this is really important, to remember that Paul was a missionary pastor theologian. You know, Paul didn't just write a bunch of uh, you know, church dogmatics. It's not, he's not just hashing out his theology. He's always writing letters in response to issues that are arising in a community or proactively writing to encourage them in the faith. So these are pastorally focused letters in which we see him explaining his theology in response to what's going on in their lives. And uh, Paul traveled with a guy named Luke, uh, Dr. Luke or Doc Luke, and uh, the book of Acts recounts the history of how they ended up in Thessalonica. And so while in Asia Minor, Paul received a vision of a man of Macedonia begging him to come and help the Macedonians. Think about that. You had a vision from the Lord. You know, someone being like, please come help me. Uh, you probably would go. I hope you'd go unless you're like a Jonah type. But Paul goes and uh, they start in Philippi and the gospel causes a stir and they wind up in jail. And through a miraculous intervention from God, they're released from jail and they you know, say, hey, let's get out of Philippi. And they go to a few more cities and then eventually wind up in Thessalonica. And as was their custom in most of the cities they went to, they preached first in the synagogue. They preached first to the Jews and then to the surrounding city, the Gentiles. And in Thessalonica, the gospel, when it was proclaimed, the life and death of Christ, uh, his resurrection, it was received beautifully, but also amid much tension. And so a riot broke out, and uh, they got dragged into court, and again, Paul had to be on the move. Now, depending on how you date these letters, they were written somewhere between 50 and 55 AD. Um, either Galatians or 1 Thessalonians is the first letter we have from Paul, and I think it's 1 Thessalonians. So here is like the first Christian epistle. And it's, it's really fun to look at it, because Paul isn't just writing... Uh, his first, you know, idea, he probably wrote other letters, but he's writing an epistle to a church that is likely three to six months old. You know, they're, they're probably at most a year old. He's writing very close to his visit. And so what do you have to say to a group of Christians who have just, you know, become believers, who maybe have some access to a few scrolls of the Old Testament, but other than that, all they have is their memory of encountering Paul and what they, he taught them about Jesus Christ. What do you have to say to that? How do you encourage them, especially in a city that is enduring so much affliction? You know, the city is pushing against the gospel. You so while we might be a little bit older than the church of Thessalonica, you know, not by much, uh, and while we have way more resources to grow in our knowledge of God, we too have to wonder, how do we have a faith that sustains in a city uh, that either it speaks so loud that we just don't even hear our faith in the day-to-day -day interactions, or it's indifferent toward our faith and we feel discouraged, or it's antagonistic towards our faith and we give up? How do we continue then to be a faithful presence in the very normal lives we live Monday through Sunday in our city? So as we begin the series, I, I want to work through uh, some of these questions and sketch out what I think is a spirituality for the long haul, a faithful presence. As we do that, the first big idea we're going to explore is this morning, and it's this. Uh, when we are gripped by the love and the joy of the gospel, 
we become an example and a witness to each other and our city. So when we're gripped by the love and the joy of the gospel, we become an example and a witness. So open up your Bibles uh, with me to uh, 1 Thessalonians. It's below, uh, between uh, Colossians and 2 Thessalonians, somewhere in the back of your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, everything is on the screen. Paul writes in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalon the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our memory, I don't know if you know this, has a huge amount of space. One neuroscientist uh, uses this analogy. You have um, a million gigabytes of, of storage. And to put that into perspective, you could record, um, what was it, three million hours of television shows, uh, which would take 300 years, so good luck. But that's how much space our memories have. And the question is, what will we choose to remember? I mean, some of the stuff we just remember. But what will we choose to remember? What will we choose to recall from all that can be recorded in our life experience? Paul is constantly remembering the people he encountered in Thessalonica. He says, whenever I'm praying, I'm remembering you. You know, not some abstract entity that's the church. He's remembering people with names and faces. He recalls to mind specifically their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. He purposely remembers the people he encountered who show him what faith really looks like, what hope really looks like, what love really looks like. And Paul says, you're laboring, you're working, you're steady in the things that matter, faith, hope, and love. This is long-haul language. You know, this, these aren't just nice ideas, they're actions. You can under, only understand faith, hope, and love in the way in which you live. Now, Paul says faith works. Faith works. You see, a true faith in God is not just a passive set of ideas that we you know, store on a memory shelf somewhere. Otherwise, St. James says that sort of faith is dead. Now, faith that works is faithfulness. It's not just believing the right things, although it includes that. You need to know who God is and what's true about him. But living in response to what you believe. Because God, he's saved us, but he's also set us apart for good works, to do good in the world around us. Paul says love labors. Otherwise, it's just sentimentality. It's hallmark cards. Now, the word Paul uh, uses actually uh, alludes to labor, birth. Uh, it conveys the magnitude of exertion required. Now, you don't coast into real love anymore, you just like coast into accidentally having a baby. You know, like it's not uh, just a feeling. It requires immense effort, you know, to love again and again and again. He says it, it requires a magnitude of exertion, love labors. And he says hope, it's steady. You know, it's not just wishful thinking. It's not just see the glass of, it's half full. It's to know how the story ends, the hope of Christ's 
return, and it doesn't make you abandon the present world. In fact, it makes you re-engage in the present world all the more because you know how the story ends and you know how you live now represents where this is all heading. And the Thessalonians, their faith works. Their love labors. Their hope is steady. You know, this, this is long-haul language. They are set up to thrive, but how did they get there? And how can you keep it up, especially if a magnitude of exertion is required? You know, I don't know much about having babies. I've seen two being born. You know, like, if that's what's required, that sort of exertion, that sort of pain, that sort of, you know, effort to follow Jesus for the long haul, I mean, we're only three verses in and I'm already feeling really tired. How are we going to get there? Here's how they get there. Look at verses four through five. For we know, brothers and sisters, I have to pause because the ESV always insists on translating Adelphi brothers, but it's a familial term. It's brothers and sisters. Sisters, can I get a what, what? But (laughs) for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know, you have practically unlimited space in your mind, and you can replay memories at will and sometimes not at will. You know, the, the story of who we are, our background story, it's always playing on a loop in our minds, always subconsciously and sometimes consciously. You know, the background of our family history and key events and moments that have shaped who we've become and who we're becoming. And it's playing on playing and playing. And good movies know the importance of this. You know, a good movie gives you the, the background story of, of a character. And I wish I was more civilized, but you know, Wolverine, not very interesting unless you know his background story. And I don't really understand it, but he's got claws, you know, and, and, it, and it makes it better. And Paul, he remembers the Thessalonians and he wants to remind them. He says, you remember now how your new life with God began. He wants them to intentionally bring to memory their new origin story. And this is the story that they are loved by God. God has chosen them. I mean, look again at verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, he's chosen you. Repeat after me. For we know, brothers and sisters, Loved by God, he's chosen you. Now like you actually believe it. We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you. See, we could just do that for the next hour. Many of you would leave, but that's enough. You know, that is enough. That's enough. And yet Paul wants to unpack this. Why? Why them? Why did God choose these these people? Why us? For no other reason than this. God chose us because he loves us, and he loves us because he loves us. St. John puts it this way. We love because God first loved us. The great hymn by Josiah Condor goes, It's not that I did choose thee, O Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, if thou hast not chosen me. You see, God took the initiative to give us 
a new story about who we are. We're precious in his sight. And this new story starts with his extravagant love being poured out on us before we even asked for it, before we even desired it. God loved us. Before we ever responded, God chose us. And you see, a spirituality for the long haul starts here because all of a sudden it doesn't depend on us, it's on God's initiative. You see, the Thessalonians, they have a a faith that works, a love that labors, a hope that is steady because they've been gripped by God's love. They've been gripped by God's love. Because you can't fabricate faith, hope, and love. You can't. They emerge in response to knowing God's love for us in Christ. If we don't understand who we are in Christ, that we're beloved, We're going to dry up. We can't endure. And if we think our spirituality depends on how much we love God, we're going to run out of steam. See, Paul, he doesn't say here, remember how much you love God. He says, remember how much God loves you. Remember how much God loves you. But I think this is one of the most challenging areas of all of our lives with Christ if not the most challenging. We can know with our minds God loves us. Sometimes it just feels trapped there, doesn't it? It's head knowledge, but it hasn't sunk down into the fiber of our being. And it gets trapped there because there's other stories playing through our mind that uh, tell a different narrative, and we find them more true. One of my favorite authors is Brennan Manning. He was an expert on self-hatred, a very unique specialization. And uh, he was a Catholic priest, which I'm sure helped. And also, uh, I'm joking, we're Anglicans, we're redheaded Catholics, it's okay, we're allowed. Anyways, he was also an alcoholic. And eventually, he was defrocked, utterly ridiculed and shamed because he couldn't overcome his alcohol addiction. Yet, over and over in his life, he'd rediscovered grace. And he couldn't stop writing about it. I mean, he published so many books. If you want to engage Brandon Manning at his best, uh, Ragamuffin Gospel, oh, so good. Abba's Child, that will change your life. And he reflected on the things that inhibit our experience of God's love. And here's one thing he had to say. In my experience, in my experience, self-hatred is the dominant malaise crippling Christians and stifling their growth in the Holy Spirit. Self-hatred. I'm sure there are people in this room who struggle with self-hatred because I've deeply struggled with self-hatred. And I still continue to struggle with self-hatred from time to time. Self-hatred looks like this. You're not at peace with yourself. You don't like your own company. You dwell on your mistakes. You assume people only see the worst in you because that's all you see in you. You can't take a compliment. And and sometimes the pain of self-hatred can lead to self-harm, cutting. And if that's you, well, you know, this is a safe church. And if you ever come forward to talk about that or need care, uh, we're not going to judge you. We're not going to shame you. We're going to listen to your story and walk beside you. 
And when you see yourself this way, when you hate yourself in these subtle ways, it makes it really difficult to digest that God could love you. Because surely he sees you the way you see yourself and more. And you know the scripture says God loves you. You know we're supposed to believe that. But holding on to it as true is like holding, you know, a, a really hot cup of tea. Like you've got to put it down after a while. Because you think about God loving you and you think about it and then you start thinking, I haven't really experienced it. And then you start feeling bad about yourself like something's wrong with you and the self-hatred kicks back in and it's just a cycle. It's too painful to think about. Now, for others, you might not be as prone to self-hatred, but you still struggle to trust God's love, that God loves you specifically. You know, many of you will be like, yeah, 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 God loves the world. It's not specific. It's not your name. Or for others, too, this is just a wild idea, you know, like you're just checking out this Christian thing, and this just sounds like religious fantasy. God loves us. It's a nice idea. It's a Hallmark card. Or... The thought of God's love does nothing for your soul. It warms you in no way whatsoever. So for all of us, one of our highest priorities, if we want to have a faith that's going to last for the long haul, is to know who we are in Christ. And if you're still checking out this whole Jesus thing, you want to know who you're going to become in Christ if you're going to follow him. So this matters to all of us. And with God's help, we need to rework our hearts and our minds over and over again with the truth of the gospel. God loves us and he has chosen us. And God loves us because he's chosen us. And the good news is that this truth doesn't depend on how well we believe it. Your belief in this does not make it true. It is objectively true. And you can ask God for an experiential knowledge of his love. Paul puts it this way. We know you're loved by God because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and Holy Spirit with full conviction. You see, love's an emotional feeling, and God will grant us emotional feelings from time to time again, but if we're going to measure our faith by how we feel, it's going to be problematic. God wants to give you a full conviction about the truth of his love for you. You see, what Paul means is that he doesn't want his love for you just to remain in your mind. He wants it to sink down into the center of who you are. We could call this the affect. Yes, it'll include an emotional experience from time to time, but he wants you to be so convinced through and through of the truth that he loves you, that it does not shift. And it says, Paul says, this will be a gift. God wants to give this to you in the Holy Spirit. He wants the Spirit to come into your life in power and grant you full conviction of God's love for you. But it can take time for this new story to become our default story. Because old memories, old narratives, stubbornly play on repeat in our minds. And if you're not yet living in a deep conviction of God's love for you, it's okay. It can take time. John Wesley, uh, the great revivalist of the 18th century, uh, is an encouraging example. He grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I think like 15 kids, Don, is that right? 14? We have a historian in the room. Uh, anyways, John Wesley grew up in a Christian home, and uh, he, as a baby, got trapped in a burning uh, house and was 
taken out of the house. And his mom said, he, my, my child's a brand plucked from the fire. God surely has uh, good things for him. And Wesley did grow up to become an ordained priest in the Church of England in 1726. And then uh, in his zeal, he traveled to the New World, to North America, to Georgia, uh, to preach the gospel. And just as a sidebar, if any of you ever feel called to go move somewhere and preach the gospel, um, Wesley, when he got there, fell in love with someone, and she, did, she ended up marrying someone else, and he was so upset that he barred her from communion, and the town drove him out. And so uh, that's not a good approach. <laughs> but he had a sincere desire to see people come to know Jesus, and so he traveled back uh, to, to, to England. And it, you know, it wasn't until 1738, so, you know, 12 years of being an ordained ministry that Wesley describes his heart as being strangely warmed, a very British description, strangely warmed by the gospel. He was gripped anew with God's love. You know, this wasn't a matter of Wesley finally being converted. He was showing fruit of the spirit and signs of his conversion well before this moment. He was most certainly a Christian, and yet... God's love gripped him in a profound way that he sometimes would describe it as his evangelical awakening, his reconversion. And he describes an emotive experience. He had an emotional encounter with God, but also the full conviction of its truth, an unshakable conviction that God really does love you, a conviction that sinks deeper than just the mind alone. So if it took time for was an imperfect and yet amazing example of faith. It's okay if it takes time for you. But know this, God's love is never beyond our grasp. You know, God doesn't dangle it out like a carrot hanging on a string on a stick. He's not asking you to pursue something he has no interest of giving. And when it lays a hold of us, when it takes root in us, Brennan Manning describes it like this. The splendor of a human heart that trusts it is loved unconditionally gives God and us more pleasure than the Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Van Gogh's Sunflowers, the sight of 10,000 butterflies in flight, or the sense of a million orchids in bloom. Don't you want to know this sort of pleasure, this sort of love? A love that's greater than the sight of the Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Van Gogh's Sunflowers, which are just incredible, the sight of 10,000 butterflies in sight, or the sense of a million orchids in bloom. Take all of this and crush it together and multiply its beauty into some amazing portrait, and God's love still exceeds it. So you take the most beauty and love that we know in this world, the best artistic expressions of humanity's ingenuity, and God's love is more creative still. Don't you want to know that? If so, focus whatever effort you have on discovering it. You see, our, our effort won't earn God's love. If we're in Christ, God already loves us. That's not changing. And if you don't believe in Jesus, guess what? God loves you. He wants you to know his love in Christ Jesus. And his love for us is unshakable. And so... Rather than earn his love, our efforts, 
Open us up into an experience of God's love, into the full conviction of the truth of his love for us. And our efforts pay off in disproportionate dividends. So what's required of us? Let me make a simple suggestion that all of us can achieve. The regular practice of prayerfully meditating on scriptural truths about God's love. Take one verse that speaks to you. Your love's love, O oh Lord, is greater than the height of the heavens. And mull on that. And if you don't know where to start, grab a copy of the Daily Offices because we've designed that booklet in such a way to help you grow in your love and joy of the Lord. So put your effort into discovering God's heart and let the Holy Spirit do the work of birthing love and joy in you. Now let's turn back to this verse, this beautiful verse about God's love for us and read it in its context. Paul goes on in verse five, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. When the gospel comes to us, it always comes in an example. Now, it doesn't come disembodied. It comes through people because the gospel is news. It's the news of Christ reconciling the world and us to God. And so it has to include people. It's for people. And so they come and they deliver. And Paul says, you need these examples. You can't separate the gospel from whom it's changing. But how they live in light of the gospel will affect how plausible the gospel is to us. We know that. And Paul's saying, you received a good example. And this was especially important for the Thessalonians because they needed a good example because they were in the midst of much affliction. Much affliction. Luke, he describes this time, you know, and he says, look, when Paul was in Thessalonica, a riot broke out. And some of the people of the city uh, broke in into new converts' homes and dragged them to the city council. So quite literally, this church is receiving the gospel amidst much affliction. They went from living nice, comfortable lives to it being turned upside down, to being accused in public, to no longer being safe. They went from safety to, like, danger. And Paul says, yet you received it with joy. For the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul's already said that the Holy Spirit can give us the full conviction of God's love for us. Now he's saying the Spirit also grants us joy. Joy is a deeper, unshakable happiness. It includes the feeling of happiness, but it's deeper. The joy of the Spirit is also unlike our regular happiness because it can't be robbed by affliction, it can't be moved by suffering, and it won't increase by good times and things going well either because the joy of the gospel is not contingent upon what's going around us. Rather, the outflowing of God's love in our lives is joy. It's the reality that God's face, his delight, shines upon us always, always, always. God loves you always, 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 and on 
and on, and it bubbles up in our lives as joy because when this grips us, how can you not be happy about it? And again, if you haven't experienced this, if you're feeling like, I don't know, like, that, that seems like forcing something out. I just say, ask God for it. Because in the Christian faith, love and joy hold hands. Paul understands if we're going to have a spirituality for the long haul, we have to know who we are in Christ, and it needs to be pleasing to follow him. Because we're pleasure-centered humans. And he also says we can't go at it alone. We need examples. We need examples that make the love and joy of Christ palpable uh, in our lives. We need examples of what faith, hope, and love look like. And when we surround ourselves with these good examples, as a result, we too become a good example. Because the gospel is never a privatized affair. It's deeply personal. It always takes place with others encouraging you along the way and pointing to Christ. And it always takes place within the context of your greater environment for us, Vancouver. So lastly, as the Thessalonians become an example of the gospel. Paul says, you've also become a witness. Look at uh, verses eight through 10. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. The gospel always comes to us on its way to somebody else. It's not just good news for some, it's good news for the whole world. You see, God's love for the Thessalonians, God's love for us, God love, God's love for you is just a taste and a glimmer of God's love for the entire world. And Paul says the gospel, it sounded forth from you. He writes, it's gone forth everywhere. That The news is spreading that you've been changed by this. It could literally be translated, the word of the Lord is ringing out from you. It's resounding forth from you. What made the Thessalonians' witness so powerful that everybody's talking about it? Because it changed them. It changed them. Look at verses 9 through 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. You turned from God or to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, the transformation in their lives that took place when the gospel took root in them, it wasn't subtle, it was noticeable. It took time, but it was noticeable. You see, they stopped participating in idol worship, which was common in their culture. They stopped participating in emperor worship and, and the, the cult of Caesar. You know, they, they probably still went to the temple uh, synagogue, but they did it in a different way. And the cultural norms of their society were no longer the norms for them. They were changing before people's lives, and, and people were taking note, and they're saying, there's something different about the God they're claiming. It's actually changing them. They're peculiar. But none of this, none of this is possible without having known the love of God. Because that is the foundation for a long-haul spirituality. That is the foundation for lives that actually change. You see, God didn't send his son into the world because he was indifferent about us. You know, John 3.16, it's not like God was so indifferent about the world that eventually Jesus came and yada, 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 things are better. 
God loved the world that he chose to save us, that Jesus willingly, because of his love, came into the world to suffer horrendously to save us and deliver us, Paul says, from the wrath to come. Verse 10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. If you're English, you could say wrath, which makes it sound a lot better. But wrath, listen to me, wrath is the other side of the coin of God's love. Do you believe that? Wrath is the other side of the coin of God's love. John Stott uh, passed away in 2011. He's a phenomenal pastor and theologian. And he explained God's wrath this way. God's wrath is neither an impersonal process of cause and effect, nor a passionate, arbitrary, or vindictive outburst of temper, but his holy and uncompromising antagonism to evil with which he refuses to negotiate. You see, I don't want a God who negotiates with evil. I don't want a God who's just going to wink at genocide. You know, I don't want a God that's going to look at the sexual exploitation of humans and just shrug. I want a God who is holy and just. I want a God who's going to make things right. I want a God who's going to stand up and say, actually, sorry, humanity. Subjective truth is a bunch of baloney. There's objective truth, and what you've been doing is horrible and evil. The problem is, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if God is going to come and set the world right and remove that, all that's wrong and evil, how do we get through it? How do we get into his love if God has to justly deal with what's gone wrong? And that's why Paul says, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus said, I'll deal with it. So I love you. And I know you've been complicit and caught up in this system of sin that you're powerless to help yourselves. So I'll do it. And, and that's why we have the hope that when the day of judgment comes, when wrath deals and eradicates suffering and evil, injustice and oppression, sin and even death itself, that Christ will deliver us through it into the unending love of God. And what's so amazing about to me, is that when Paul gets to the heart of the gospel, that Jesus is a savior, not just a nice teacher, not just a nice moral, you know, idea generator, like, he's a savior. You don't hear Paul talking about the Thessalonians' work of faith, or labor of love, or steadfastness of hope. You see, their work, their labor, their steadiness it's not what warrants what Christ has done for them. It's not how good they are. It's not how well they've grown in Christ or how big of an impact they've had in Thessalonica. None of that matters before God. None of it would ever be enough. So how are they saved? Well, let's go back to verse four. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you. You see, Christ saves us not based on anything we can do, but solely on what he's done for us. And when we accept this, when we say yes to this reality, because what I'm telling you isn't just good advice, I'm, I'm declaring news. This is truth. 
When we say yes to the truth of this reality, Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit. He's present right now, always, 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 through his Spirit. And when this grips us, we will be faithfully present to him because his love draws us in and gives birth to a faith that works, a love that labors, a hope that is steady. But as I've been working on the sermon, I realized, you know, I could, I could preach for hours about God's love. I could exhaust metaphor and illustration and scriptural text. I could go on and on and on. I can't make you experience it. I can only tell you about it. And only the Holy Spirit can so fill your entire being with love and joy that you're fully convinced of the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. So may we know the love and joy of the gospel. May God make you into a faithful example of his life-changing love and joy. May God use our example as a witness that rings out and resounds throughout our city, telling the story of a better love and joy available for all.